Welcome to the Mid-Stage Startup Momentum Podcast. Each week, we interview up-and-coming founders of some of the fastest-growing mid-stage startups across the world. Your host is Roland Siebelink, who will share some of his own experience helping startups scale from 10 to 1,000 people in a few years. Here is Roland. Hello, and welcome to the Mid-Stage Startup Momentum Podcast. My name is Roland Siebelink, and I'm a coach and ally for many of the fastest-growing founders and startups around the world, one of which is in our studio today, and it is Sensible for founder and CEO Harry Santamala has joined us. Hello, Harry. So nice to meet you. Hi, Roland. It's great to be here today. The honor is entirely ours, Harry. We've heard so much about Sensible 4, but if you had to explain to the audience in a few sentences what you do, what would you say? Well, I, I think in a nutshell, Sensible 4, we, we are a software company mm-hmm. in the auto- automotive industry, so in the autonomous driving space. Mm-hmm. And coming from Finland, mm-hmm. uh, not your main automotive country, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe partially because of that, we also focused a little bit differently. So for us, what we do with the self-driving technology, we actually focused on commercial applications. A- anything which is not owned by the person inside the vehicle. And sort of, we anticipate that through the technology, we can actually, you know, enable autonomous uh, mobility anywhere. And that, that's sort of the, the core essence of it for, for us. Oh, excellent vision. So uh, really, we can see in a way that autonomous driving market in that sense is already developing like markets usually do, where there's people finding new niches, new ways of looking at the business model. Um, Mm -hmm. I love that. You already said, uh, Harry, that uh, Finland is not your typical automotive country with uh, not not a lot of companies active there, right? So can you talk us a little bit through the starting history of uh, Sensible 4? How did you get to this idea and how did you guys get started? Yeah, okay. So just like so many of the the self-driving companies, we are actually spinning off from from one of the leading research groups mm-hmm. uh, in the not in the you know not automotive industry because there wasn't really autonomous driving research until some years ago mm-hmm. uh, but more, more coming from from the robotics mm-hmm. so so the story actually began already in the late 80s mm-hmm. not, not by my myself i was still playing with transformers <laughs> uh, when my co-founders were already building their first outdoor mobile robot applications excellent and, and and you know in finland we like to to say that you know we don't have oil or we don't have uh, any of these natural resources mm-hmm. except we have a plenty of bad weather yes <laughs> <laughs> it really comes in in all forms and shapes and and you sort of never know if it's going to be raining cats or dogs on any given day uh-huh. So just imagine doing a robot in, in a such climate where we basically like for outdoor applications where they basically had to sort of face all these conditions. And this was really the lucky coincidence for which sort of got the journey where we are heading mm-hmm. today, starting by by basically researching and later developing better agnostic uh, technology and building sort of experience and know-how around the sort of problem of, of the bad weather. 
Oh, excellent. So you're really getting to a core competence of Sensible 4 here, yeah. I understand, which is really the optimization of autonomous driving or robotic technology for whatever weather it can deal with. Is that correct? Yeah. So 2016, in the middle of the, the peak of the, the self-driving hype, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of the petrol head and automotive guy of the company. Okay. <laughs> And, and we sort of started to look into this industry and we saw that uh, it was lagging the performance of, of the weather. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we, we, we saw that there's a huge opportunities uh, for, for different var- varieties of commercial vehicles mm-hmm. available, which you can solve through the technology. And, 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 but, but the challenge is that if, if you, you know, live in somewhere where the 90% of the global population lives, which is subject to seasonal, at least seasonal bad weather. Mm-hmm. And a typical uh, thing for the commercial applications is actually that, uh, you know, uh, there has to be a, a, a quite high uptime if you, if you want to make a business. Mm-hmm. So, so these things were very contradicting, and 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 we saw that, that there's an opportunity to bring something by providing solution for for, for this sort of more harsh conditions to, to enable these business cases. Absolutely. So, uh, how do you think about the business model, if I may ask? Do you see yourselves primarily as a supplier to people who? develop uh, autonomous driving technologies or is it more companies that build specific use cases like one one focused on trucking for example or is it more like aftermarket solutions that some of the owners of those autonomous vehicles would then add on to to deal with specific use cases i think in in the sort of old-fashioned way of describing we we try to to be a software supplier for automotive manufacturer okay so mm-hmm. we have few of these companies with whom we are working with and they are the, uh, either modifying a pr- sort of production vehicles to, to have a, this sort of self-driving variant or developing something specifically for 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 the industry but but I, I think that the, you know the challenge of the self-driving is is it's a combination of, of having the right sensor sweep uh, redundant hardware, overall and software that's that's working with all of this and to sort of validate your safety you need to look at the whole picture so i would say that the self in the self-driving it's more like a partnership than mm-hmm. than, than being supplying anybody as as we we really have to work hand in hand as much as possible to be able to sort of meet the challenges coming from those end use cases Absolutely, I understand. Uh, so, Harry, many of the listeners to this podcast uh, also have a, a similar target group in mind to you. Maybe not just automotive companies, but large industry players, big established mm-hmm. names. What has been your approach in even getting access to these companies to try and find uh, interest to see if they could work with you and to break through that barrier because it's not always easy right to get in touch with those big players and find the right person that would be interested in your solution i think that's really the the (laughs) essence of the challenge Uh when you you go to a industry that's uh, used to be i would say before the sort of infotainments Mm -hmm. started to come to the industry I think before that the auto industry wasn't really uh, keen on working with any startup. 
Mm-hmm. You would have to grow to, to a really serious player before you could get to the industry. And But I think they learned from, from these sort of a few success stories. I mean, uh, companies like Mobileye used to be startups as, as and the industry is much more open on different uh, collaborations nowadays than it used to be. And, and that was a little bit even surprising to us, us to, to be honest. But how to, to approach the big guys? I mean, mm-hmm. we've been working with some of the, the leading names like Toyota here in Europe, and, and quite a few others uh, in Europe and, and Japan, which are sort of our main markets. Yeah. It's, it's a long game. Mm-hmm. You, you start by, by trying to get your initial POC to get to know people and get them to see that you are serious about that. And, and But of course, there's no POCs are only good tool for, for sort of uh, for moving forward in, in the commercial cooperation. Mm-hmm. But, but basically, when we established the company, we basically we didn't have any investment or savings for, for that matter. We just had a four guys, two of them like uh, really experienced researchers. Yeah. Uh, then, then I was sort of the petrol head or <laughs> automotive guy. And then we have a one guy who was all about the business. And, and we started to approach these companies early on, uh, usually through different kind of uh, events and different kind of... Uh, most of the big names do have some kind of innovation units or, or you know, our counterparties. And it took us some time, but... Uh, or I think it was a little bit more over over a year when we got our first major tier one to, to sign up on a quite big POC. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, also one major OEM doing exactly the same. But meanwhile, you had like dozens and dozens of, of contacts sort of developing. And yes. then you give them some time and, and try to, to sort of develop the relationship until time is right. Yeah, so the relationship building and, and going yeah. through the long haul is an important part of it. I saw in your investment lineup that you even signed up some uh, some uh, Japanese investors and or partners of uh, Japanese partners of your investors. How's that been working out for you? Are they like uh, advisors or in your board or how's the general investment strategy been so far? I think there's always money available if you have a great idea, the right mm-hmm. team and the right timing. Uh, but then, then the question is is that you, you get something more than just, just the funds, especially in, in a sort of early stage com- for a company who doesn't have any customers nationally, so we only can go abroad. Exactly. So, so uh, we were very lucky and very happy to, to, to f- find our first two investors were both from Japan. Mm-hmm. So, so Nordic Ninja is, is 100 million Euro fund in Finland, uh, mm-hmm. but originating from Japanese auto and banking industry. Oh, excellent. Okay. And, and the second investor was Itochu, which is one of those huge Japanese trading uh, companies. Mm-hmm. And, and it has been incredibly helpful on getting these investors to back us up, as both of them have been very taking very active and sort of advisory role that if, if we need their help, they are there to help us. And... and but of course, not uh, pushing in, in case uh, uh, we, we don't need them for something. It has been a really good balance mm-hmm. on, and helped us already to, to acquire f- uh, a few very prominent customers overseas. 
Yes, I can imagine the building on being able to build on their relationships and, mm -hmm. you know, getting warm introductions from people is so supremely helpful when you want to reach those big corporations. Yeah. And uh, my understanding and perception from Japan, since it's a quite enclosed country in a way for, for mm -hmm. until you have the first couple of Japanese companies that everybody there knows, then it's sort of, it's like a seal of acceptance. Yes. And that, that's really helpful. So Harry, can you talk a little bit about the team you've built so far? You said you meant you started off with two researchers, a petrol head and a business person. How how big has this team become and how what are the key divisions, the key functions in there? I, I think, believe we are approximately 90 people as of 90. today. Yeah. Yeah. Where 85 are in Finland, where we do the RD. Yeah. And of course, for this kind of deep tech company. You can assume that the biggest team in the company is, is uh, developing the product. Of course. The second biggest team in the company is working with this customer, you know, production intent projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we have a few other people sort of run the administration and, and sell the product. But uh, that, that's really, really about it. I would say that the, uh, th this is a guesstimate, but I would say that the, uh, it should be more than 65 out of, out of the 90. Are, are working in either R&D or, or the customer projects. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, that's a pretty heavy but understandable for the kind of company you're building. Yeah. Where do you find all these engineers and technically adapt people? And how do you make sure they fit into Sensible4 from a, from a values perspective? Uh, that's a good question. I think the advantage we have is, is that uh, basically uh, our CTO and CBO through these decades in academia, they have basically sort of been teaching most of the workforce available in Finland uh, <laughs> because it was also the biggest such group in Finland. And I, I believe it might still be. So they really know everybody and we are known. And, and that, that has been a great source of getting the talent who doesn't want to move, you know, to Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. to working some big, big autumn striving company. When we talk about automobile driving, it's it's actually in the at the end of the day, it's a, it's a, you know software which we had to get working. So it's not only about the robotics, but but actually it's a software development exercise as much as uh, as it's it's robotics. So mm -hmm. so the, being sort of the only company doing this kind of you know full stack product for the AD industry in the country has had it sort of advantages on getting the attention and being able to, to, to grow the grow the resources in a quite cost efficient manner. But of course, we also had a lot of people moving into the country to to work for for sensible for. About the question about the fit, of course, <laughs> that's the eternal you know eternal challenge you never know it's it, when you hire somebody the industry standard is a six-month trial in finland oh that's very long <laughs> that's quite long so there's a sort of mutual time to, to get to know each other mm -hmm. to see if that's a really a fit be, before the uh, trial period ends absolutely have you got some explicit things you look for or things you absolutely do not look for in an employee that you know this won't be a good fit or is it really more experience talking through these six months and, and getting to know them better each each on their own way uh, i think this is a quite a startup problem that you know mm -hmm. uh, you start basically the organization and the processes are being built by the people on the company 
but you can assume that for quite many positions, it's going to be an empty table. Do what you, you know, th- this is the big goal. Get us there and <laughs> do what you must. And for some people, that's a really like they thrive from this kind of challenge and environment. Uh, for some people, if they've been, let's say, working only in a big automotive corporations their whole life, coming into this kind of environment where things don't work in the waterfall model and there's no processes or everything is not defined, it can be a huge challenge. And I think in the self-driving, maybe that has been one of the challenges we had to face as, as on the one hand, we need people with automotive experience right to make an automotive product but at the same time the, the startup is such a different beast compared to established big corporation that mm-hmm. you're always sort of balancing when making a decision on hiring somebody this is one of the questions we have to ask every time to make sure that the you know it's a big big mutual commitment to make sure that that goes as planned Absolutely. So let's move a little bit towards the future. So you you mentioned you've signed up a few big customers. You're about 90 people, as I understand, right? So already huge growth from yeah. starting just a few years ago. How big can this become? And, and when do you know you will have achieved the vision behind Sensible4 if you look in the long-term future, maybe 10 years ahead? I think given that we are basically... The business model comes, basically, uh, there's a huge lack of drivers in Europe and Asia. And, mm-hmm. and they're trying to tap into the sort of low-hanging fruit use cases. And the business model basically is comparing the, the cost of the drivers that are not really well available for these use cases to the, what is the total cost of ownership of this self-driving vehicle. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about big numbers and highly scalable products. So... Of course, the sky is the only limit for for this kind of technology that can truly disrupt the industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you uh, sky is a limit, that's good for long term, but still like, let's say, two to three years time frame, you have to set some intermediary goals, right? So where do you think you you would see sensible for, let's say, at the end of 2025? At the end of 2025, uh, we have a serial production actually already second generation available and, and uh, in, in a multiple serial production vehicles or different mm-hmm. types. And the company should be already well positioned to be the, you know, the next unicorn for, from Finland. Last question before we move into where people can find out more about Sensible4, Harry. If you talk to founders that are a little bit behind you, maybe three, four years that are just starting out, start just starting to get uh, some success with their products, what would you advise them? What's the biggest lesson learned for you as a founder? I think it was really about trying to get into the business on the day one. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't only mean selling selling. Uh, demos and POCs and whatever you can sell at that point, but actually, you know, bootstrapping in, in a sense that the part of the business is also maintaining the cost of the operation. Right. So so we had a some often, of course, quite painful growing by bootstrapping for the first three years. And, and mm-hmm. that really helped us to sort of establish a business model and cost structure that can be, or it actually it was uh, profitable for, for the first three years, but that can become profitable again upon the, the product launch. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think in, in today's world where, where the sort of tech market is stumbling, like the stock mm-hmm. market, uh, it's, it's becoming more and more important that, that you have a sort of 
really solid traction about finding those customers and making a business wherever you can, because that's at the end of the day, it's, you know, reducing the risk of running out of cash, but also increasing the chances of landing those uh, big customers. Excellent. That's a great lesson, uh, Harry. Thank you so much. So if people want to find out more about Sensible 4, where should they go? And is there something particular they should download or look at on your website? I think, of course, the website should give a quite good overview, uh, but we also have a very nice YouTube channel uh, with both uh, professionally made videos, but also some of those cool ones from, from the bootstrapping times we, we made we <laughs> made whenever we basically had some bad weather or, or we were doing the cool cool stuff. So I would say that this would be the, besides the, the, the use of LinkedIn, of, of course, the, the places to look at. Excellent. And uh, remind us of the URL for the website to make sure that everyone goes to the right place. Sensible4.fi. So I'm four with the number four. Sensible for one word dot fi. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you so much, Harry Santamala, CEO and founder of Sensible Four. It was an honor having you on the Midstage Startup Momentum podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And to the listeners, we'll have a new episode for you again uh, next week. Keep recommending the best founders in the world to us, and we'll keep putting all their insights together for you. Thank you so much. Like what you heard? Subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Tune in next time for more hot startups and interviews with some of the highest momentum startup founders in tech today.